But where are you really from? But where are you really from? Hey everyone, I'm Angela Lin, and I'm Jesse Lin, and welcome back to another episode of But Where Are You Really From. Today we have a special guest with us, Harry Ow. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So Harry, we got connected through Instagram, but actually we do have a friend in common. We have friend of the pod that you were a previous guest on the What Kind of Asian Are You podcast with Kyle as host. So that's actually, I think, our main connection. How was that being a guest on Kyle's show? Yeah, it was fun. I had a good conversation with him and uh, he asked really great questions around, you know, Asian mental health. And, um, and I really just enjoyed sharing information with them, just chatting with them in general. Awesome. Yeah, Kyle's a good dude. So it's nice that we're connected through that. You already kind of mentioned Asian mental health. So I think it's an important thing to let you introduce yourself and what you do. And as part of your introduction, we are going to ask you to answer our signature question. But where are you really from? Yeah, so hello, everybody. My name is Harry Ao. And I'm a therapist. I work specifically with Asians, Asians who feel kind of trapped in their life. And we really try to build the self-empowerment and self-liberation for them to really pursue what they want to do. So where I'm really from is um, I'm from Hong Kong. Born in Hong Kong, came here when I was six years old, been running around in Markham, a small town within the province of Ontario, close enough to Toronto. And um, yeah, grew up with a whole lot of other immigrants and other Asians, which was kind of great. Growing up with that environment around the community, I imagine had a big influence on your decision to go into working with this group. But what exactly got you into wanting to work in therapy and specifically this niche? Because it, it is a niche when you look at the grand scheme of like mental health and therapy. Yeah, um, it was a long journey. I think for me, particularly, just having dealt with a lot of my own issues. Um, growing up, I just, mental health wasn't really a thing. You know, every year we'd go for an annual checkup at the doctor, but um, I couldn't even identify an emotion that I'm feeling. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a little wild because um, I remember my first work with my first therapist. Every time she asked me, so how are you feeling? I couldn't actually name an emotion. I would say something like, you know, I feel that wasn't fair. I feel like I'm not sure what was going on. You know, like there was not a actual word of emotion. And it was going through therapy and realizing that, oh my God, I know nothing about my emotional state, my mental health. And then realizing that there's all the stuff that was happening in my life or had happened in my life where things were getting um, triggering me or things were impacting my own, my own mental health or the relationships I was having with people. That ended up pushing me towards my own healing. And then also put me towards wanting to be a therapist because I felt like this is something that I really benefited from. And I want to share that with everyone else too. When you said you weren't able to speak to your feelings, was it a situation where you were trying to find the feelings or the feelings were there? You just didn't know how to express them. I think there were several things. First thing is any kind of feeling I would try to push away. So I kind of knew it was there, but then I just spent my whole life pushing it away because it was never really appropriate to feel them, whether it is, you know, at home or at school. And especially, I think, parts of it being a boy, being a guy and being raised, not being appropriate to express your feelings. And then the second thing is I didn't have the words for it. 
Um, I know like sad, anger, confusion, but I couldn't identify what it was because I never really wanted to look at it. So my whole life I spent pushing it away that I have these words, but I can't apply it to myself. And then there's another level of it where it's kind of like, if I apply to myself, then I feel kind of ashamed for having these feelings. So then I would be like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't want to label that. I don't want to put a name to it because then I have feelings and I have to admit that to myself. So there were so many layers of like just covering up and not knowing and not wanting to know. And um, all of that just made it a long journey to go through therapy and figuring out and understanding my internal state better. You mentioned that there were different areas where you felt like suppression was happening of the feelings like home life, school, the fact that men are taught not to express their feelings. Do you feel like each of those environments provided a different kind of suppression? Because I think about like my background and it wasn't necessarily that there were no emotions. It was just like certain emotions were not expressed and the let's say like vibrancy of the motion was kind of muted like there were never any moments where it was like oh my gosh big happy like huge moment but i don't know if there were also like terrible moments it was just kind of like very emotion light Hmm. yeah um i definitely felt a lot of anger um that was kind of the main undercurrent of how i was feeling most of my life man in terms of like happiness and and all of that, like there were the joy and happiness. But I think as I started growing older, the happiness really just subsided. It was, it was less and less. And it was more and more anger, frustration, shame. So yeah, and there were a lot of different things that led to that. Home life stuff, family stuff. And just kind of when you have trauma and you don't deal with it, it just kind of gets worse over time. And that was exactly that process for me was it was just progressively getting worse. And it was hard. It was a little bit hard. That definitely resonates with me. I don't think I had a muted uh, home life like Jesse may have had. I guess on a daily basis, if like nothing big happened, sure, it's like muted, quote unquote muted. But I agree with you, Harry, that like if there was a prevalent emotion, it was often anger or frustration in the family. And it was very visibly expressed largely through yelling. And it just became kind of like a yelling match between people. And I really feel for the way that you described of like not really knowing how to name your emotions or feeling shame of acknowledging them because I mean I definitely was raised not to give weight to emotion even if anger was very prevalent like commonly in the family if there were fights and whatnot but we never learned any vocabulary around examining and naming and giving any validity to emotions or feelings It was just like, oh, something happened. You made me angry. You did something wrong. So now we're angry. And then like fight happens, blow up. But then we don't talk about it. And we just like pretend that it didn't happen. And we move on. But like all that hurt is still underneath. And it does just like build over time. So I can really feel for where you express that it's like, built and built and built over time because that trauma didn't get addressed anywhere. So you're just kind of like layering it on. And I definitely also felt like a lot of release when I first started going into therapy because you were allowed to finally examine that and figure out like, oh, I'm not 
I mean, yes, I am messed up, but like, it's not for no reason. Like, there are many reasons why I am the way I am. And it's like logical that somebody who's gone through like XYZ could end up the way that you are now. So yeah, a lot of your journey definitely resonates with me. Yeah. And like what you're saying, I feel the same too, that you don't blame yourself as much. You realize that, oh, okay, so there's other factors and it's not just there's something wrong with me, but that I experienced something um, that is, you know, kind of messed up. And as a result, I try to protect myself in these kind of ways. And now things are kind of hard because of that. Yeah, like, like I really like that, that it's not, you, you don't blame yourself as much and you realize that, hey, there's a lot that went on in your life and let's explore that. And those factors you're talking about in your work with the Asian community, what have you found to be like the most common things that people are coming to you trying to overcome? Yeah, um, it's hard to say. I can just share my experience in my practice. But because I work with a specific group of um, Asians um, who are 1.5 generation um, and second generation immigrants here, it could be different for different people. And also, of course, there's a lot of Asians who don't come see me and the ones that are all healthy and have learned, you know, how to express their emotions and label their emotions. Those are the ones that probably won't be seeing a therapist. But um, the ones that do come see me, generally, a lot of them struggle with feeling a lot of guilt and shame for going after what they want, but then also feeling a lot of anger and resentment for not being able to go after what they want. There are immigrants here, the parents are immigrants here, and there's this like, you know, immigrant dream that they're supposed to uphold for their parents, along with, you know, a whole lot of other kind of family responsibilities and obligations that were taught in our culture. And um, when your parents are constantly telling you, hey, you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, um, and your whole life, you're kind of groomed to do that. When you deviate from that, there's a lot of sense of guilt, like your needs are not as important. You got to go what the family needs. There's really that conflict that a lot of my clients experience. And a lot of my work is really to help them figure out, like, how do you have a compromise with your parents? Some of them is are already a doctor or a lawyer or in a career where they're unhappy. And sometimes some of them actually decide to leave their profession. And then some people who are in a profession that is not what their parents wanted, and their parents let them know every day that's not what they wanted. So it can be challenging. It can be challenging. And a lot of our work is really to help them, first of all, deal with that inner critic, that voice that shames them for having their own needs, and then building the ability to communicate with their parents. And it's not easy because, you know, when you start communicating with your parents, which is something a lot of us don't have, that relationship with our parents, your parents aren't exactly happy about it. They're like, oh, you're changing our dynamic and I don't really like it. So um, what I usually tell them is, hey, they're not going to like it at first, but if we focus on having the intentionality that we're building a better relationship with them, then over time, a lot of times what, what I see with my clients and their parents and their family is that their parents start, start to get used to the new kind of dynamic. And then they also start realizing that, oh, my, my kids are adults now, which sometimes they don't know. So that shift does change over time, but it's not easy. It's pretty scary to have that first conversation with your parents. A hundred percent, because I think the first time I had like some breakthroughs about myself, I just wanted to like talk through it with them where... A lot of it was me kind of examining where I am now in life. Like, you guys had a role in it based on the way that I was raised. I don't blame you for it because it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of factors for the way that they chose how to parent. But even just like expressing it, one, they were definitely not used to 
any sort of that kind of dialogue to begin with. But number two, I think, like you mentioned before, shame is like such an undercurrent of the way that Asian culture runs that the immediate first thing that their minds went to was like, oh, you're blaming me for failing as a parent or something. You're blaming me for how messed up XYZ was. And I was like, no, I'm not blaming you. Yes, the consequence was like what it was. But I'm telling you now, even like calmly about it, because I feel at peace with it myself now. But I think it's important for us to talk about so that you understand that you did hurt me back then. And that they're like, I don't want to continue that dynamic in the future, you know, those kinds of things. But I, I found it interesting that the first thing that came to mind for them was like, oh, blame, there's like blame here. And I'm like, that's what I'm latching on to. Yeah. And I'm actually curious for you, Angela, how were you able to be so calm to tell them? Because that to me blows my mind. Well, so I think my therapy route is maybe different than the way that you run your practice. Um, not sure how much you've heard our show, but I do do talk therapy. And I have done it for many years now with the same woman. But I also have done psychedelic therapy. So I had a lot of insights. And when you use psychedelics for therapy, you feel things so deeply that you just know them to be true. So for example, like whatever blame I would normally attribute to my parents in that state, I just knew it came from a place of good intent, but because of the way that they were raised and whatnot it came out wrong. So I knew that like they didn't mean to hurt me. So I already had that kind of in the back of my mind when I was going in to have these conversations. And I already kind of made peace with it myself prior. I mean, it's certainly still not easy to deal with like a response that's negative And that's a whole other thing, right? That's like meditation xyz you're trying to calm your own emotions in a moment but in terms of like approaching the conversation i think it it helps that i already had that kind of like inner knowing of like they tried their best there's also like nothing more to be had here for you to, to explicitly blame them or like evoke some like prodding them in that way it's not going to be healthy or helpful in any way so i didn't go in with that kind of intent anyway damn angela you're so mature <laughs> I say that because I still feel that trigger. And a lot of my clients also feel the trigger when they go talk with their family and with their parents. And uh, for me, I always feel like this is lifelong recovery. A lot of times the experiences that we have is lifelong recovery. Some days we're better, some days we're not as good. And just giving ourselves some grace and, and uh, a little bit of leeway is always helpful. But I really love what you're saying that you, you kind of go and prepped. Like you're like, okay, so let me, let me go meditate. Let me let me get my head straight, my mindset straight, and let me go in and have this conversation. I love that. I really like it. Look, I still get triggered. Uh, like Jesse, I just complained to him the other day about some little housework thing that like blew up in my face and whatever. But if you have some big thing to talk to them about, you can prepare ahead of time, right? You can't really prepare for like if your mom's suddenly going to say something annoying that triggers some like teenage self of yours. That's always going to happen. So no, I'm not perfect in that way either yet. I wonder when you chat with your clients, how they navigate the mental framework of their parents, because kind of like what you guys have already been saying, I don't think our parents necessarily saw anything wrong with what was happening in terms of the parenting or the messaging. So I feel like when you come and talk to them years down the line, they're like, 
and what like that was just kind of like i i remember i had a lot of these conversations as a teenager with my parents because i would ask them like why are they pricing so much pressure on me like i felt crazy sometimes like the amount of pressure and i feel like a couple years later when i was talking to my mom about it like when i was in college she was saying like i don't think i applied as much pressure as like other parents did like other parents applied way more pressure to their kids so it was almost like what was happening was normalized in a sense because their peers said everybody was like this is the pressure that you apply to their children so how do we go about like reorienting our parents thinking to be like maybe the pressure is right but the way that it was applied really was kind of traumatic in a sense yeah usually when i when i chat with my clients around setting boundaries we always start off with the boundaries with people who are not as scary so like with friends with your partner with colleagues so we always start off there. And uh, a lot of my clients actually have a really hard time saying no and really hard time setting boundaries with people. And when we start from there, it's scary, but it's not like the extreme where you start off with the parents and uh, a lot of times they end up freezing or they end up reenacting um, the relationship with their parents, which might be, you know, they shout back or they freeze or they just leave and not talk to them for like six months. So we start off with the other relationships and as they kind of get more adept at it and as, the, as their conversations with, you know, their colleagues and their friends become easier and that they're able to notice, hey, so every time I have these kind of conversations, my heart rate goes up, I'm all tense, and uh, sometimes I want to yell at them, and sometimes I end up yelling at them. We're slowly starting to notice their patterns of how they interact with people as they're setting their boundaries, and then they get better and better at it, and then we kind of move on to their parents, where we're starting to build their skills around, okay, so what can you anticipate? If you say this, what do you think your mom's going to say? What do you think your dad's going to say? Sometimes we're even role-playing and rehearsing in the session to kind of get them in the, in the headspace on anticipating what they're going to say and how they will respond and how they will feel in the moment and what they can do to help them with the emotion. And that way, they're kind of going into the conversation very prepared and kind of already can know what their mindset is or what their parents' mindset is or how they think about their, their child rearing is. And they go and have the conversation, we come back and we, and we kind of look at it and say, hey, so what went well, what didn't go so well? Um, how do we continue to have these conversations with our parents? Sometimes it even take step by step. The first thing is saying no to your mom when she asks you to go to a restaurant and pick up food for her. Maybe that's the first thing you need to do. And then later on, really having the longer conversations with her about, hey, so you're not allowed to say these things to me. It doesn't make me feel good. And then progressively building that, um, building that conversation and building that relationship. Sometimes the parents never hit that point where they're okay to talk, to have these conversations with you. But a lot of times what I do find is that when we take it slow and slowly shift the conversation and the dynamic in a different way, a lot of times the parents become receptive to their conversation as the relationship slowly changes over time. Angela, I actually, I was just thinking about this and do you feel like it's hard to do that? Because I don't know if it's like a vocabulary thing or just like the language thing, but Mandarin feels so direct to me in a way where you cannot be like, well, I feel like da -da -da. it's like so to the point sometimes. I like, I was thinking about like how I would say certain things in the more like, I feel this kind of model and I'm like, oh, it still seems kind of like very pointed. <laughs> yeah, I guess 
you're right, it is pretty direct. And we're also, our vocabulary is not, like, expansive enough to work in cushion words, I guess. But uh, I think for me, I still mix English in there also. I like, they, they, it's not like they don't understand any English. So, like, if, if it just makes my point clearer, I'll, like, sprinkle in English. And also, I think I do try to reassure them Sometimes, like, even if, like, what I'm saying may sound direct, I, I'll probably say something to the effect of, like, I know you're not trying to hurt me. Like, I know that you're not coming with bad intent. I know you're saying this because you care about me. But at the same time, this is, like, very annoying to me or, like, not within your bound to tell me these things, you know? So I think I try to cushion it with stuff like that where, like, I know where you're coming from, but please stop. <laughs> like, that kind of stuff. But Harry, um, to what you were saying before, I really like that you do the role play because I do the role play with my therapist sometimes. And it sounds hokey sometimes to people like, hey, you want to role play this? And you're like, I guess. But then like, it's actually very helpful. And actually, when you're saying it, I was like, it sounds pretty Asian, actually, to do this. You're like kind of prepping for a test. <laughs> you're like prepping for like a life test. And you're you want to be as prepared as possible. So why wouldn't you do that when you're going to have like very very important conversations with a very tough recipient so role play makes a ton of sense to me and I'm glad you're doing that with your clients yeah and I sometimes soften that kind of weirdness in the role play by just asking them what would you say to your parents and they would say it and I'll be and I'll ask them what do you think they would respond with so I don't actually play the role of their parents to soften that awkwardness because it is kind of super awkward to role play and for them to look at me and be like oh you're my dad now like that's really weird I can imagine. Hey listeners, wondering how you can support us? The biggest way is by increasing our visibility by following us on Instagram at Where Are You From Pod, on TikTok at But Where Are You Really From, subscribing to our YouTube channel under But Where Are You Really From Podcast, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and telling your friends. The more people we can get to listen to the show, the more we can continue spotlighting different perspectives and stories. And if you feel so inclined, we're also accepting donations at buymeacoffee.com slash where are you from. Thanks, y'all. So because you do come from both worlds, right, and your whole niche is working with people that straddle the Eastern versus Western, how do you balance those two contexts and points of view when you are trying to work with a client and their struggles? Because therapy as like a concept is quite Western because most people of our parents' generation, I think, still have this impression that therapy is only for like crazy people who have something like wrong with your brain. And that's the only reason you would be talking to a therapist. Like even my mom knows that I talk to a therapist now and every time I kind of mention like I'm going to go into the room because I have my therapist at like two o'clock or whatever. She always has this kind of like, mm, you know, look on her face of like, why do you really need that? So like, how do you balance what is right versus wrong, I guess, in perspective when you're already dealing with people that may have this barrier to cross already with this concept of therapy being more Western grounded? I personally don't see that as much of a challenge um, or much of a problem in the clients that I see. Usually by the time they come see me, they're kind of like, okay, I think I need to talk to somebody. For some, there is skepticism. And I find that for men, there's a lot more skepticism than for women. Some of them may not fully know what therapy is when they come into a therapy session. And so usually in my consultation, I explain the process to them. And I explain to them that we're not just talking either. We're really helping you build strategies. We're looking at, you know, deeper 
deeper things to understand why you have certain triggers and make those connections. And from that, we can slowly start to work on a lot of times for my clients, the, the inner critic and the shaming voice to, to, help, to help them understand that, hey, this voice developed in a certain way and it try to protect you. Therefore, we just want to help this voice get some rest because it's been active for like so many years all the time. So a lot of what I do um, in the beginning is really building the relationship and validating their experiences to let them know that, yeah, you have these experiences and feeling shame is valid. Feeling all these emotions are valid. I'm feeling angry is valid. Feeling resentful is valid. And really building that relationship with them. A lot of clients, I think, coming in, don't expect that level of relationship building because they think that they come in and I give them some kind of strategy and then they go out and they do something and then, and then that's it. But really, the entire process is so relational that um, they come back and back and back again because a lot of times this is the only safe space that they can to share a lot of the things that they want to share that, that they've kept inside them for so long. What's interesting about the therapy process too is that this is a ground for practicing. These are things that you share with me that you've never shared with anyone else. And then they start realizing that, hey, if I can share here and it seemed okay, maybe I can share somewhere else. And part of that is that your body is going to react in their fight, flight, and freeze and fawn response. Because in the past, when you share certain things, maybe you were shut down, maybe you were ashamed for it, or maybe you were ignored for, for it, or you got yelled at for it. And then now you're sharing it in here, your body is just learning to respond in a different way because it's realizing that, oh, so if I share these things, I, I might not be in, in a threatening position. I might not be in danger. And then slowly the body responds in a different way. And then they take it outside of the therapy space and they feel, they feel that it's a lot easier to share with other people and talk to other people because the bodies don't respond in such a hypervigilant response anymore. I love the connection with the body because Jesse and I have talked about this because we talk about self-growth and self-awareness and all this stuff all the time and therapy all the time. And I feel like the more you explore these topics and learn about yourself, I also feel like a lot of things start overlapping. So when you're talking about being aware of what's happening in the body and how that triggers certain feelings and having it kind of be cyclical in like the knowing helps kind of calm the body in future similar responses, it really reminds me of meditation and specifically I did Vipassana so the like 10 day silent meditation and like that that style of meditation and it's all about being so hyper aware of the sensations in your body so that you can actually better control your emotional response to whatever happens in your life. So it's really cool to see like, you know, people have all different types of practices and like ways that they approach things but there's so much overlap in like what works works. So like Noticing what's happening in your body and how that affects your emotions is a common thing regardless of like where you learned it. And the funny thing is, I have some clients who don't want to do breath work, don't want to do breathing, don't want to check in with the body. And they're kind of like, this sounds weird. I don't want to do it. So then I ask them, can we do like three breaths together, five breaths together maybe? Um, and then we do it. And then afterwards, they're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. <laughs> and because there's such an immediate result to it, they actually start applying it in their lives and they, they become way more on board because of that. It's, it's hilarious because, uh, yeah, there's just such an immediacy once they try it. Yeah, we often talk about the what we call woo-woo versus like science or whatever. And I think Asian people, especially who have never done exploration of self and feelings and all that, anything woo-woo often kind of 
anything that sounds woo-woo, like, let's just breathe. Like, let's close our eyes and breathe together. They're like, what? Why would I do that? That sounds crazy. But yeah, three breaths. That's a good way in. Who says no to three breaths? You're already breathing right now. <laughs> um, I was wondering, as you work with clients and in your own experience, like, what do you think is so connective between Asian parents and their children? I feel like this isn't always the case. Like, I think there are certain families of other races and cultures where the parent-to-child relationship is very tight. But I feel like in our backgrounds, like, it's very tight, almost in the sense of, like, controlling. And I'm wondering if you've intuited anything about the rationale from the parent's perspective as to, like, why they are so controlling. I think there's partly cultural and partly the immigrant experience. Uh, cultural in the sense that in Chinese culture, you know, filial piety has a, is like a real thing where, where it's all about the children having obligations to the family and to the parents. And um, a lot of different uh, Asian cultures, like I've got clients um, who are Filipino and clients who are Vietnamese, they all have very similar kind of um, family value um, that's being taught to them. I also think that as immigrants too, it intensifies that because you come here and it's just you and the family and your parents are going to experience racism, xenophobia, they're going to they're have a hard time uh, out in society, especially if they're not fluent in English and especially if um, also if they, they speak with an accent. It's going to be a challenge and it's hard to make friends who they can trust. So with all of those pressures and stresses, they kind of double down on family because they don't have a choice. There's not a lot of um, other people that they can connect with. There's not a lot of other supports they can really access. Uh, so they double down on the family and that bond becomes even more intense than what it would have been if they w didn't have to deal with the immigrant kind of pressures. I think that actually leads into a similar topic that we wanted to talk with you about. I believe on your website, you mentioned that codependency and narcissism in Asian parents is like a common thing that you were working with clients on. So I can already see the codependency part based on what you were just talking about. But I'm curious if there's more to that. And also specifically narcissism, I'm also curious how that all comes about in your client's experiences because I mean I have thoughts but like I it's such a pointed thing to call out so I'm curious how does it come up with the people you work with it's such an interesting dynamic and just how human human psyche just develop uh with narcissism I don't mean like a clinical diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder I'm talking more about certain behaviors like emotional manipulation, emotional abuse, shaming, passive aggression, uh, playing the victim, that kind, of, um, that kind of narcissistic behavior. And what I do find is that in families where, as I mentioned about having a lot of pressures with being immigrants and all the kind of tough and challenging experiences that they experience, and in that pressure, it also impacts their relationship. And especially when you already have one parent who's already kind of codependent and want to take care of everybody and then realize that, oh, 
there's actually no way to make sure everyone's taken care of because they're on a, in a strange land. Money is going to be hard. Um, they don't speak the language and their children are growing up learning a different language from you and your, your husband or your um, wife might be stressed out and, and unhappy. And sometimes there's also abuse between, between the parents as well. So when that happens, the codependent parent looks for a way to protect, protect themselves. And sometimes that way ends up being these narcissistic behaviors, like, you know, being highly critical, being very emotionally manipulative to get what they want. And that can be very challenging because nobody's happy. And then on top of that, this person who who is taking on a lot already is also developing these behaviors that can really negatively impact everyone else in the family. And then for the children that grow up with a narcissistic parent, they a lot of times also become codependent. And um, a lot of times you, you might also see certain behaviors around freezing because, you know, it's better not to do anything and just freeze and, and, um, and not get any attention than to get some attention and then being attacked and criticized and shamed. So um, it can be very challenging for a lot of the clients I work with who has one or both parents who are narcissistic. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see parallels, but I won't name names of my parents. Um, I'm curious what your advice is to clients who are dealing with parents like that. Because one thing that I've struggled with as I have been working with my therapist for a while, have been working on my own self growth is like the understanding that you only control yourself, you can't control other people. And also, our parents are old. And they may not change, right? They're kind of set in their ways. They've grown up a certain way. They've gotten away with acting a certain way for a very long time. So like, how do you advise your clients with dealing with that where it's like you are becoming more self-aware of what's triggering you, what behaviors you do and don't want to tolerate, but at the same time, you cannot control your parents and they will probably continue to exhibit those narcissistic behaviors or like the things that you don't like because that's who they are and they control how they operate, you know? I love what you're saying about how you can't control the people around you, but you can control how you react to people and how you engage people. Because that is literally something that I would tell some clients. Because um, I think sometimes when clients come in and we're setting goals for the therapy, sometimes their goal is to actually have the parents be a certain way. And I just have to get really real with them and, and tell them that we can actually change them. We can hope that in your change, that it might influence for them to change or that in your change, it might shift the relationship you have with them and that the relationship they have with you. But ultimately, we're not in control of that. And I also tell them that, you know, I wish we were in control of that because it would make everything so much easier, but we are not in control of that. We work on understanding their relationship with their, with their parents. And here's where I really draw on my client as the expert in their life. Because sometimes I may suggest something and they're like, oh, my parent will not be okay with me saying that. Or that if I say something like this, they're going to just attack me back or, or say this to me and, and everything is just going to explode again. So this is the part where I really need to listen to them to understand that, hey, this is, might be a dynamic where we, we might not be able to shift at the moment or ever. And then really working on, on it with the client to, let, to ask them, so what do you think you can do? How do you want to approach this conversation? And then we also kind of make contingency plans around interactions with parents who might have narcissistic tendencies. How do you want to deal with the emotions as they come up? What are the things that trigger you the most when you're speaking with them and they say certain things to you? And how do we anticipate that and be able to kind of get ahead of the emotion? And also, how much do you want to interact with your parents? 
how much in a week, in a month, in a year? How long do you want each interaction to be? How do we plan out what conversations to have versus what conversations not to have and how to change the conversation? Because if you don't want to talk about your career as a non-doctor, then we should not have that conversation. And when that comes up, change the conversation. So it's making all these plans um, with the client in a collaborative way so that um, I'm drawing on what they know in their family and how and how their dynamic is to best prepare them for how they want to have their relationship with their parents. Uh, not to get too personal from your side, but I'm curious since you have been working in this for so long and you have dealt with so many people with so many experiences that may parallel some of the things that you've gone through yourself. I'm curious, since you started both doing therapy and being a practicing therapist, what is the biggest positive change you have seen in terms of your dynamic with your parents? Yeah, it's been, let me, let me think about this for a second. Hmm. Not getting involved in their relationship. <laughs> and really voicing that and saying like, I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to be put in the middle. I don't want to be your emotional um, guide or, your, your, or, or the person that you offload everything to and vent to. And just being very, very clear with that and being very adamant about that boundary once it comes up. It, and it's scary because I've always been that person in my family. And it's really setting that boundary with them that, that allowed me to kind of be like, okay, so when I receive an email or a voicemail, I don't actually have to listen to it. Because even just reading and listening to it, it's like, oh, everything's coming back from, you know, when I was like, you know, 17, 18, and like things were the worst. So learning, learning what was really effective for me to do. That is huge. <laughs> Congratulations on setting that boundary. I've definitely played that role before as well throughout my life. So I, I can definitely feel the weight lifting off your shoulders when you set that boundary for yourself. And it's funny when you said that there are two things that came to mind. One was I was like, but how do you get away with that? Because you were literally a therapist because you know, the, the response that many people would say, like, I'm not your therapist, <laughs> you know, like, I can't, I don't want to play that role. But for you, you're like literally a therapist. Do they ever play that card on you? Or they're like, but you are a therapist. You can just be our therapist. They have said that to me before and to my sister because my sister is a naturopath. And sometimes I don't know how to respond to that. Like, especially, you know, when I wasn't expecting them to say that and be like, bam, hit you in the face with that, with that question, right? But um, if that comes up again, I think I would just be reiterating that there are other therapists and, and you know, kudos to them. They're, they're seeing their own therapist to work on their mental health. So I just remind them that, hey, you got, you got a therapist, you know? And this is the kind of things that you should bring up with your therapist and not to me because I'm your son. I'm not your therapist and I would like to remain your son and, and not be your therapist. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us this episode and special thank you to Harry for joining us as well. We would love to end the episode with your biggest advice to Asian Americans, Canadians around the world, the diaspora that are still dealing with trauma and issues from their upbringing, how should they best move forward? Whether you want to seek out therapy or not, I think it's, um, it's really looking at, hey, what's not working in my life? Taking a look and examining that. For some people, they want to see a therapist. And if you want to see a therapist, I would say, you know, go for it. Do a few consultations with different people just to see who feels the best fit for you. And it's okay if you feel like, you know, I saw this person a couple of times and it doesn't feel quite right. It's okay to change. Go with your gut feeling. For those who perhaps feeling like, you know, therapy might not be a path for me right now or ever, I would say 
understanding your internal state would be really helpful. So I always recommend people to journal. Just set a time, sit down and write, write your thoughts down, write your emotions down. Um, and if you have a hard time labeling your emotions, um, you can just uh, look for a list of emotions. Look for a list of emotions and figure out like which one's which. And at first it's gonna be really weird. It's gonna be really hard. Um, but then you'll get so much better at it as you do it more and more. And also just writing all your stuff out is so cathartic sometimes. And there's a lot of different kinds of journal prompts. Look on Google or look on ChatGPT just to like have very catered prompts for you and, uh, and try journaling out because knowing your internal state would be really helpful to understand like, why am I reacting in this way? Then once you start realizing there are certain things that trigger you, you can start investigating that a little bit more yourself. And, and eventually you're probably going to look into more information, but that, that'll come later. I love how practical your advice was. Can we just say like, this must also be because you work with Asian people all the time. You give the like hard facts instead of like some loosey goosey answer. That's hilarious. Listeners who want to reach out to you, who may have questions for you or may even want to work with you. How do they find you? How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can check me out on my website at harryowtherapy.com. My last name is spelled A-U. So harryowtherapy.com. Um, I also have a free gift for everybody. I have a free ebook called um, The Asian Survival Guide for the, Our Crazy World. So you can go in, uh, subscribe to my newsletter and check out my resources. I have a weekly newsletter called One Minute Taking Care of Yourself. Just a one minute task where you just take care of yourself really quick and easy and just a good reminder to integrate just one minute of your time each week for your mental health. I love that. So many freebies for yeah. y'all. Get in on that. Awesome. Well, listeners, definitely look up Harry and in general, be more in tune with yourself. Seek out help if you need it. We're all about mental health. So please take care of yourselves and come back next week because we will have a fresh episode for you then. And until then, say bitches. bitches.